Hey, hey, welcome to the Wildscast. Uh, I just finished an, an hour-long conversation with David Bernstein, who is the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. And the reason I interviewed him is because I'm very much concerned with anti-Semitism in general, but specifically now the anti-Semitism that's coming out of the woke ideology on the left. And David is the author of Woke Anti-Semitism. He literally wrote the book, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. And I wanted to understand on a deeper level the anti-Semitism that's coming from the left, because the Kanye's and the white supremacists, they all get called out. People are outraged by them. People push back on them. But when a guy like Roger Waters of Pink Floyd or some of the others who attack Israel and call her an apartheid state and, and say that they're a Nazi regime, it goes unchecked. And we are now seeing the comments of Whoopi Goldberg and some other big celebrities who are sort of getting away with making comments that are really either bordering or are actually anti-Semitic. And it's just, it's, it's just happening. So I want to understand where is it coming from? What are the roots? What are the ideological roots of anti-Semitism that are coming out of the left? How woke ideology has been leading to anti-Semitism? How does critical race theory play into all of this? How does it you know, sort of develop to produce the kind of anti-Semitism that we're seeing. And and of course, Israel and the Palestinian issue is always going to be a, a hot button issue with lots of people on different sides of the issue. But to call Israel an apartheid state, to call Israel a Nazi regime, right, that they're just killing Palestinian children randomly. And, and this is what's coming out of parts of the left, right? How do we expose that? for the anti-Semitism that it is, and where is it coming from, and how can we best confront them? Now, the other thing I discussed with him, because he is a leader within the progressive liberal Jewish community, right? This is, uh, as I mentioned, he uh, he wrote a book on this on, in terms of anti-Semitism, but he supports liberal values in the Jewish community. So I want to know also what we can do to bring Jews closer together, Jews that are Orthodox, or Jews that are more right-leaning, and Jews that are, let's say, in the reform community or in the conservative community, or are not affiliated. They're just more on the left. Because I'm growing more and more concerned about the rift in the communities. Um, liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans are having less and less to do with each other socially. I have a lot of students now who are telling me that if they're more conservative, Republican-minded, they would never date a progressive liberal and vice versa. And I'm concerned that we're a small people. There's 15 million of us in the whole world. We're less than one-fifth one of 1% of the world's population. We're already split up amongst Orthodox, conservative, and reform. We've got Sephardic and Ashkenazic. We've got a million groupings within our tiny 15 million population, world population. And now because of social and political issues, we are even more uh, divided. How can we stay connected and just remember that at the bottom, at the level, at the most base level, we are each other's brothers and sisters. So I brought in a progressive liberal to talk about this. So please give your attention to my discussion and my interview with David Bernstein, a passionate advocate of free expression, a passionate advocate for Israel, and at the same time, someone who supports liberal values in and out of the Jewish community. Take a listen.
Welcome to the Wildcast, and welcome David Bernstein, who is the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. It is a great honor and pleasure to have you with us. I'm going to get right into it, David. Tell me, what are liberal values, and how, in your opinion, uh, is today's left, okay, and you can talk about the different parts of the left. I'm sure there's more radical left, there's more left of center left, but how is today's left in general, in your opinion, going against those classic uh, liberal values? Yeah, I'm not sure there's been another word more confusing than the word liberal, uh, because in America, when we talk about liberals, we tend to mean political liberals, people who have a left of a center political agenda. Uh, what I mean by liberal in this context are classical liberal values, the free expression of idea, the rule of law, the foundation on which a democratic society, free society is built. And, um, and what I mean by it is it's almost like an operating system rather than a software, a piece of software. It's how we relate to each other or don't relate to each other if the operating system is broken. So if, um, so what I'm, what I'm concerned with is that people aren't able to speak openly to each other. They're not able to express their authentic points of view. And we have a lot of survey data on that. Um, they feel like they're walking on eggshells. We have the, some of the highest self-censorship rates since the McCarthy era. Actually, they're higher than the McCarthy era in, in the United States. So, um, so I think that liberal values, in the, as in the free expression of idea, viewpoint diversity, is badly strained in American society today. Um, now, when I talk about the specifically, left, specifically because of the walking on eggshells, because we don't feel comfortable enough to share what we're really thinking or feeling, and therefore we're sort of our conversations are stunted. Is that it? Yes, that's it. And and the reason for that, I would argue, is that we have certain ideologies that have caught on, and we can talk about what those ideologies are. I would say. Woke ideology on the left is probably the, the primary factor for the renewed censoriousness in American society. But I also think that there's a cancel culture on the right that affects discourse as well. Um, and that those two, those two forms of illiberalism feed off each other to create a more polarized reality and a, and a less open reality, a less liberal reality. Is there, I'm just curious, is there, you, you do see a, a cancel culture also on the right? Can, yeah, can I think the cancel culture is a little different on the right. Um, I think that that there are forces on the right who are now arguing that uh, that liberalism as a system is no longer working. It's caused ca that the freedom has caused its own contradictions. We have to go back to sort of the rudiments of um, uh, where where we impose views on American society. So there is a, a wing of the conservative movement that is arguing that now. And um, and, you know, I think you can hear in certain circles. I mean, certainly the culture of like right wing talk radio is not exactly open to multiple views. It can be just as snarky and mean spirited as you see on the left. Um, so I do think there's a deep seated liberalism on the right as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Any, I mean, I'm just curious just to call out. I mean, a guy like Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro, who love talking about um, speaking with the other, speaking with people that don't hold their views. So I, I, you wouldn't, I, I would assume you wouldn't put them in that camp, but you're saying you'd put, there are others that are just sort of, you know, in their own little, uh, what's the call, echo chamber and right. just talking to each other and not, I mean, that's not really a cancel culture. That's more like just keeping the other opinion out. Right, right. But when you, when you speak in no uncertain terms and when you 
drag your opposition over the coals. And when you mm-hmm, talk mm-hmm. like you're going to vanquish the other side permanently from politics by defeating their very you know essence, um, you're you're engaging in a kind of illiberalism that doesn't promote dialogue across differences. So um, again, I'm not comparing it exactly to what you see on the left, because what you see on the left is something very specific and something very ideologically motivated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and tell us how is this is affecting Jews, uh, both in Israel and here in the diaspora, the, uh, the you know, just the way that the, the left is going or the way that the country is being shaped by the left. Um, how is this? Because, you know, we brought you on to to talk a little. You, you are an author of... Um, uh, a wonderful book. It's called The uh, Woke Antisemitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. So how is progressive ideology harming Jews? So let me start with my definition of woke, because I think it'll be helpful. Yeah. Um, woke embraces, the idea of woke ideology includes two tenets. One, that bias and oppression are not just a matter of your personal opinion, but they're in, but they're embedded in the very systems and structures of society. They're like the air we breathe. That's assertion number one. Assertion number two is that only the people who have experienced that oppression and bias have the authority, the insight to speak about it and to define it for the rest of society. Lived experience gives one the qualifications needed to be able to articulate oppression. And so anybody who's speaking out of turn and not based on their own lived experience is exercising a kind of privilege or even racism, depending on who you're talking to. And that second tenet that I talked about, that that idea that only people who have experienced oppression get to talk about oppression or define oppression is a way of basically imposing a kind of cancel culture in society. Mm-hmm. It also upholds this idea that the only reason that why there are differences among groups in society, why some groups do better than other groups in society, is because the groups that are doing better are oppressing the weaker party. It's the oppressed versus oppressed binary. And in that binary worldview that's being inculcated in schools and in many institutions, even in many corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, and that worldview Jews are going to end up on the wrong side of the equation every time because we're almost the ultimate successful minority group. We destroyed the paradigm that they're advocating because we should be poor. We should be oppressed. We came from oppression. So why are we succeeding? To succeed means that you're complicit in white supremacy. And so therefore, we must be complicit in white supremacy. Wow. And so that's why you hear things like Jewish privilege. So so it doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter how much. Uh, anti-Semitism, we are, uh, you know, we are subject to. If if there are enough Jews still doing well in Hollywood, in finance, in business, in you know, then then um, we don't have a chance of ever being um, what's the word? Um, Indigenized. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's so interesting. It's so fascinating. And you can imagine how that affects Israel, by the way, as well, because if Israel's views as a stronger party, it can't be the more moral party. Right. And by the way, you saw saw that shift. It's interesting because Israel or Jews after the Holocaust, they guarded enough sympathy in the world, at least to get a a majority vote in the UN for, for the creation of the state. I wonder if the United Nations today, I always thought about this, had to re-vote on Israel, whether we would get that majority vote anymore. Probably not. Probably you know, not. probably not. So what what what's changed? The only thing that's changed from 1947 when they first voted and now is power is that the Jewish people somehow have been successful in 
um, you know, maintaining their own independence, you know, in a pretty rough neighborhood. And that, so you're saying that the just simple having power, even if it's rightfully gained, and even if it's legitimately used, by definition, according to the woke ideology, by definition, you are going to, um, you're, you're, you're in the wrong, basically. You're right. in the moral wrong. Yeah. So go back a little bit. Before there was popular domestic woke ideology in place, there's this post-colonial ideology that's been around in the far left. It basically holds that the reason why certain countries do better than other countries is that the countries that do better were, were colonialists and they oppressed the uh, these the countries that they colonized, and that that explains why today some of those countries are still not doing well. Um, and 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 so you would hear this in post-colonial circles. This is what the Durban Conference in 2000, a conference on racism and xenophobia, was about in 2000 when Israel was basically uh, accused of blood libel and yeah, Jews were that. dragged in with Israel. It was a it was. Um, it was a horrible period, and it reminded us that we were not in this sort of post-anti-Semitic liberal world. You know, this was that right after nine one one as well. Uh, but no one really stopped to do the analysis. What was the ideological underpinning underpinnings of Durban? It was post-colonial ideology. Wokeness is post-colonial ideology applied domestically. Mm -hmm. It's taking that that binary worldview of oppressed versus oppressor. And applying it to why certain groups or people do better in American society than other groups. And that's what we've been seeing. The problem is that we don't like to talk about the ideological underpinnings of left-wing anti-Semitism because it's inconvenient because it puts us out of alignment with our with the left flank in American society. So if you take a mainstream Jewish organization, they'll freely speak about the ideological underpinnings of right-wing anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. the great replacement theory, the idea that that ordinary Americans are being replaced by immigrants and that Jews are doing the replacing is something you can easily talk about. No one's going to argue with you about that. You can talk about the ideological. I mean, I mean, no one's no one's going to argue with you protesting against it. You're saying. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And the Jewish organizations talk about it all the time. I mean, you right. can read about it on the ADL website and the like. Right. Um, you can even talk about Muslim anti-Semitism. It's a little bit more touchy, but it's certainly not a third rail in the same way, um, which is, you know, the idea of Islam, Islamist ideology, the idea of the infidel and the like. But when you come to left wing anti-Semitism, it's as if you're talking about a symptom without a cause, that it comes from, you know, out of thin air, right? And people don't want to talk about the ideological underpinnings. And I think that's a major blind spot. Because if you can't talk about the underlying anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that is animating the form of anti-Semitism, you can't really fight it. And you, what's worse is you may actually be contributing to it because if you're an organization like many Jewish organizations that want to be aligned with the left and you continue to speak in very woke terms and you um, and you and you say things that you would have never said five years ago, you may be contributing to the very ideology that's producing anti-Semitism on the left. Wow. Wow. You know, I was actually very encouraged last summer. Um, I brought up my group. I brought a group from MG to Washington to the rally against anti-Semitism. It was organized by Alicia Wiesel, Elie Wiesel's son, who was a friend. I know it well. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing I was actually quite impressed is that he tried very hard to make the protest against anti-Semitism not simply come from the more conservative, let's say, orthodox world. He tried very hard to make it as 
you know, diverse as possible and had, he had leaders in the gay community, had leaders from more, you know, communities that are associated more with the left, you know, which I thought was interesting. Now it wasn't a terribly well populated rally and it wasn't, you know, it was a summer, it was a couple, couple thousand, thousand people. Couple, yeah. 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 But I was impressed with that because what I would love to see is a, a complete kind of protest against all forms of anti-Semitism with the same vehemence that we, you know, we get so exercised when the right, when a, when a Kanye, um, you know, says what, you know, spews his, his ridiculousness, but that's easy. But w- what happens when someone says something radically anti-Israel? And, 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 and that's the problem I'm finding because anti-Israel, it gets a pass because it's just critiquing the policies of another government who said anything about Jews. And, you know, uh, you know, um, the Iranian president would do the same thing. I don't think against Jews, it's just Israel. <laughs> Everybody knew that was just a guise for anti-Semitism. But somehow when Roger Waters, Pink Floyd, and some of these others who are not just critiquing specific policies about how Israel deals with Palestinians, obviously that's a complicated issue in there. And Israel's open to critique on that. But just calling it an apartheid state, let me ask you this. I'm sorry, I'm going off on a rant. Do you, if somebody would call Israel apartheid, if somebody would call Israel a Nazi government, you know, and um, euthanizing its, you know, Palestinian children, how do we get people to, uh, how do we get people to see that that is just anti-Semitism? Yeah. So look, I I think that, you, we can get caught up in that debate a lot. I, I try to actually dodge it to a certain degree in the book because I don't want people to sit there and debate me for hours and hours about whether calling Israel an apartheid state is anti-Semitism when some Israeli leader said it 10 years ago or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I it's it, the, and I want to make a distinction between calling out individuals who say such horrible things and wrong things and Speaking of a, the phenomena of anti-Semitism on the left, which is deeply anti-Zionist, which holds Israel to a double standard and the like, I think we should be very sparing about calling out individuals who engage in this and, and be willing to talk more about the phenomena. Because once you do that, you can appear to be overreaching yourself. Like people don't ne- immediately recognize that calling Israel an apartheid state is anti-Semitism. So if you start uh, if you're if you're too fast and loose in that way, you may turn off a lot of the people you're trying to win over on that. I think we've got to I think we've got to do a better job of articulating why um, this anti-Semitism is appearing. Why is and we can even just say why is anti-Israelism gaining ground on the left? Why is anti-Zionism gaining ground on the left? And and that's where I think we 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 miss the boat. Um, Jonathan Greenblatt from the ADL likes to say that anti-Semitism on the right is like a hurricane. And anti-Semitism on the left is like um, like um, climate change. And I mm-hmm. think that's a perfectly apt analogy. In other words, it's slower moving, it's corrosive and so forth. I think that's a perfectly apt analogy. But what he doesn't talk about are the, the ideological CO2 emissions that are producing the climate change on the left. In other words, he just talks about the climate change. When he talks about the hurricane on the right, he's very clear on what those are. So, 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 so we've identified. Let me. I'm sorry to cut you off. So, so let's get into it then. You've identified one aspect of woke ideology that is fueling anti-Semitism: the power versus the powerless. That you know, which is let's say inherited from the old colonialism, and today it's wokeism. What else is there? What What about? Um, 
uh, you know, does critical race theory play into this? Yeah. Well, critical race theory at its most basic form is a theory, an academic theory um, in the legal world and so forth. But it is the it is often crosses over into what I would call critical race ideology, in which it tells you exactly how much you look at the world. And it basically is an offshoot of the same ideology. It is woke ideology um, used in a very specific way. It's basically saying that you can't understand the world by just looking at um, our, our laws and so forth. What you have to actually do is understand that that oppression is systematic and it's mm -hmm. it's it's um, it's wrapped into the very foundation of the in fabric of our society. So that's so what, what, what critical race theory is. And, and therefore, what's the response? What's the response in your mind that 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 there that that this is that's the, that's an illusion. There is there are people who are racist and there, there might be some instances here and there of institutionalized racism. But sure. generally speaking, it's it's not true. I mean, is that what we need to do, in your opinion? Th that's one thing we need to do. I would say it's more complicated, maybe not true. In other words, I would say, yes, yeah, some in some instances in society, in some moments in society, we have a we have a um, we have oppression that's in the very air we breathe. And, uh, you know, Jim Crow America might have been an example of that. Um, but that doesn't mean it explains everything today. It doesn't explain everything today. There are all, all kinds of reasons for group differences. And this is a grand simplification of very complex social conditions. That's number one. Um, number two, I would say absolutely having lived experience of oppression is um, is an important thing to understand and listen to. Like as a Jew who's experienced a lot of anti-Semitism growing up, you should hear me out on it. But right. that doesn't mean I have the final say. I don't have a monopoly over defining anti-Semitism. And if you see the Pew survey that shows that Americans admire Jews more than any other religious community in the United States, that's a counter narrative to my own experience of experiencing anti-Semitism. That's also a data point. And you should be able to factor that in into the discussion. I never, well. I never heard that. Can you repeat that for our listeners? Say that again. Yeah, yeah. The Pew survey a few years ago did a survey about which um, religious communities were most admired in America, and Jews ranked number one. Wow. So and that's again, happening. that doesn't mean there's not anti-Semitism. It just means right. that the no, no, dominant no. view of Jews right. are right. is positive, and that has to factor into how I look at anti-Semitism in America. So my own lived experience is not enough to tell you everything you need to know about anti-Semitism in America. Right, right. So listen, you know, as we record this, uh, Whoopi Goldberg has come under fire for reiterating her past comments that the Holocaust was white on white violence, yes. right? Not motivated by race. Okay. Yes. Now, first, tell us your thoughts and, and tell us how in your mind is her view informed by this woke ideology that you're speaking about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't say that about every form of anti-Semitism on the left, but this is classic. So an, if, another aspect of woke anti-Semitism is sort of the idea that uh, that Jews are white. OK, that not only that we're white, but we're hyper white. Uh, my my colleague uh, Pamela Pereski likes to say that when whiteness was um, was a moral good in the eyes of many, Jews weren't white. But when I whiteness is an unmitigated moral evil, as it is in sort of woke worldview, then Jews are white. Um, and um, and in this worldview, it's it, we're taking the way that America has defined race in these very in this very stark way, you know, that uh, and um, and we're and she's applying it to the Nazis. So in in America, white passing people, supposedly white passing people uh, like Jews are 
are gaining white privilege, are, are complicit in whiteness, are part of the white power structure. And so she's saying that must be the case in Nazi Germany when absolutely it wasn't the case. In fact, Jews were highly racialized in Nazi Germany. Um, Hitler saw Jews as a different race and that race needed to be exterminated. Um, so the idea, so she's taking this American white uh, classification system, which is, you know, which is a, a product of the American experience, not a particularly good product of the American experience, by the way. It's something that I think should be revisited and applying it to Nazi Germany, thinking it must have been the case then, too. So I think it's it's an absolutely absurd way of looking at the world. And I think it it, it creates the kind of anti-Semitism you're hearing, like she can't see the Holocaust as a as in as a, a unique form of evil because she can't view Jews in the way that the Nazis understood Jews. She cannot understand what Jews were experiencing because she's applying a very, in a very ethnocentric matter, an American way of looking at race and racism. Wow. And, and, and the response is what, you know, the, the first response um, first time was they canceled to, you know, two views, two, two views, two, two episodes on the view. She couldn't go on and she had to go to a, uh, like a Holocaust museum or something. And it was ridiculous. Right. Yeah. And I am not, I'm not sure that we should penalize everybody every time. I'm not sure that that always works out in the way right. that we hope, you know, does, um, does barring, you know, Kyrie Irving from playing basketball, really reducing anti-Semitism um, in the black community that, that, that twist on anti-Semitism that we see in sort of radical segments of the black community? Probably not. So and what do you do? What do you do then? Because if you don't, like, here's the thing. I'm also conflicted by this. I don't believe in canceling. I hate it. Right. On the other hand, if you don't cancel someone like Whoopi, and if you don't, let's say, start a, a, a you know, a movement to cancel Whoopi, then, then it, it'll, she, she can say what she says. It remains unopposed. The Talmud tells us, Shtika Kahoda, that, you know, silence is like acquiescence. What do you do then? Yeah. So let's at least acknowledge the dilemma that when we speak out against something, we may actually be making it worse. We may be breathing in ox breathing oxygen into the thing that we don't want. Um, but if we don't speak out against it, we may be allowing it to metastasize and get worse. Yeah, that happened, by the way, with a passion, if you remember, with Mel Gibson's movie. I, I know it very well. It's very active at that time. And we may have popularized something that wasn't popular. The thing I learned from the passion, by the way, was that um, I had done so much preliminary work by the time the movie came out and I would watch it in theaters with Christians. I realized that the vast majority of Christians weren't aware of the anti-Semitic tropes because they hadn't been conditioned in the same way right. as Eastern European Christians were or Latin American yeah. Christians were. And so, so we risked creating a category of anti-Semitism that was no longer popular in the Christian imagination. Right. That's interesting. Um, That's really interesting. But I, the, the, way, see, here's, the way we have to f fight it, I think, is, is to maybe deviate from the current script. Somebody posted an artificial intelligence generated question on Twitter yesterday. How is it that we should fight American anti-Semitism? And it came up with these four talking points that you could have read from any mainstream Jewish organization. It was hilarious. And I thought to myself, okay, that's a pretty good sign that maybe we're a little stuck in a rut here. Um, I think a couple things. One is with wokeism in particular, we got to get Jews to acknowledge that it's a problem. 
And so I would start by finding the the critical mass of Jews, and I think that they're out there, who believe that this is a problem. They don't want to walk on eggshells. They don't want to be told what to think. They don't think this is the kind of Judaism that they were raised with and the kind of Judaism that they want to transmit to their kids. And they're sort of stuck and afraid. And get those people to exercise some more courage. Because I think we ourselves have to know the problem, acknowledge the problem, if we're going to do anything about it. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, um, I think we've got to uh, start building some new alliances. What this tells you is that we're not safe on either political extreme. We're not safe on the right. We're not comfortable on the right. And we're not safe on the left either. And I think a lot of Jews are so, so sure that our safety is on the left that they are willing to ignore trends on the left because they desperately want to stay aligned with the left. And that blinds them to what's happening on the left. And so I think what we've got to do is start to forge a new coalition and a new center in American society with Indian and Asian American and black heterodox thinkers and others who want to live by Americans' democratic principles. They don't like the fact that the America that they fled to is starting to sound like the country they fled from. And, um, and they want to go back to sort of American democratic liberal values. Mm -hmm. um, that's why they came to this country, particularly the immigrant groups, obviously. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I think we need to reclaim that space. We need to start articulating an American ideal that is resonant with our own experience. Um, and Because I think we've given that up over, over the years. Um, talk about acquiescence. I think we acquiesced to, to radicals who we just didn't want to tangle with, who had, um, and, and, and over time, they became the dominant voice. And, and you mentioned Indian, let's say, more alliances. Um, you know, let's recognize we're not safe on the far left. So you want to make alliances. You're suggesting we create some alliances, let's say, with Indian Americans, Asian Americans. What about with Black America? Black America is far more politically and ideologically ver diverse than people understand. According right. to a pu another pupil site, 62% um, of Black Americans do not support affirmative action in higher education. Now, I'm not saying that affirmative action in higher education is a good thing, a bad thing. I'm right. saying that it, that tells you volumes that, uh, about how intellectually and politically diverse wow. Black people wow. are. And so if, if any Black person believes that, that affirmative action in higher education um, is not a good idea, then they're by definition not woke. So we're allowing, we're allowing a very small subset of Black people to define the narrative to, for both Black people and for the rest of society. And I think we're doing harm to the intellectual diversity and, and variety of the Black community. And so there are groups, there are many Black voices out there who don't like this ideology. They don't like it because of, it essentializes them, but they don't, they don't like it because it tells their kids that the system is rigged against them and that they have no chance. And that's not the message that they want their kids to grow up with. And so they're pushing back because of that as well. So let me ask you a question. Um, this is very, very helpful because I, I feel, um, you know, the whole victim mentality, um, the whole victim mentality, I think, really just sets everybody back. Because if you feel like the, the system is rigged against you, then it just it just kills any incentive that any of us have to try to be successful. And I don't just mean materially successful, but in every sense of that word. Um what, what what do you if you feel that that there are problems, let's say in black America, that are attributable to other causes? I don't know the the high rate of single motherhood. Yes, that's a big uh, one. You know, that's a huge one. Now I got into terrible trouble. I, I had 
some black colleagues um, on my podcast probably a year and a half, two years ago. And I brought up some of those issues and I got clobbered, not by them, but so many right. people that were listening. How dare you, Rabbi, bring up? And I said, well, if I personally don't believe that it's the problems the black Americans are having are systemic, but there, there are problems in their community, just like we have in our own Jewish community. We have sure. our own internal problems and we try to look inward. I'm not saying we always do, but I think we should then it shows a lack of concern for black Americans that we're just going to point to factors that we know are not, that we don't believe are attributable, you know, that are, are really, you know, the, the causes of those problems. And, and then we can't talk about the other causes because it sounds like, well, you're not black. You, you don't know. And I don't know I'm not black, but it right. seems, it seems as though, you know, now I don't know, would you be insulted if a black leader or an Indian American leader or an Asian leader started telling you, this is a, a, an issue you're having in the Jewish community. What are you doing about it? Because I think this is this is really holding you guys back. Yeah, you know? I think we have to be open to that. If we're truly open to various points of view, we can't shield ourselves from criticism coming from the outside. The question is, is it well-meaning or not? Is it done in good faith? And, and that's why sometimes criticism of another community's culture is not done in good faith. And, and, and so people want to build walls to prevent that bad faith criticism from coming their way. But if we don't allow that, then we're basically shutting off a very important set of factors from our understanding. And I think that can't happen. So two things I would say is one, as I think you're saying, what you're saying now is the right answer to those folks that, um, that listen, and this is why we're, because a lot of people didn't do what you're doing. In other words, because a lot of people just shut up after that point. Um, we've, we, we, that's where we're, why we're at, where we're at. There's this old saying that never wrestle with a pig because you'll get dirty and the pig likes it. And, um, <laughs> and the problem is many moderate people who don't want to really offend anybody, um, just stopped wrestling with a pig because they didn't want to get dirty. They didn't want to get dragged, uh, over the coals. Um, and so they shut up. And before you know it, the pig was in charge and, and we, we shut ourselves out of the public arena. So mm -hmm. I think that we've got to be willing to do that. Uh, the second thing I would say about that is that there are more careful ways of talking about culture that I think sometimes we miss. Um, mm -hmm. We can disaggregate culture um, more than we do sometimes. So let me give you an example of this in the Jewish community. Uh, my friend Rabbi Jeffrey Salkin wrote a book um, in the early 1990s about how Jewish bar and bat mitzvahs sort of became godless affairs with, you know, with and often could be, you know, in certain areas of the country, you know, $50,000, $100,000 yeah, events yeah. and so forth. Um, and um, and I think that that's the kind of critique that you need to be able to hear. But it didn't exist everywhere in the community. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and I never went to a bar, bar, bar mitzvah that could probably cost more than $10,000. And I've been to a lot of bar mitzvahs. So yeah, welcome to welcome to New York. <laughs> right, right. But what I'm what I'm saying is that that sometimes we can disaggregate it, that, that that culture didn't exist everywhere to the same extent. It existed in certain places and not other places. Likewise, when we talk about some of the problems in the black community, I think we can understand and you can read this in Orlando Pal uh, Patterson, who is a Harvard black Harvard sociologist. He talks about how there are certain elements, cultures in the black community, even in the inner city. There's the culture of the church in the black community in the inner city that doesn't 
promote the kind of nihilism that you see in other parts of, of the community. It may only be a small segment of that community, even in the inner city, that's causing a lot of the problems. So you can you can disaggregate the problem in a way that allows you to talk about it more easily. But you have to be able to address the problem. And you think it's okay, let's say, for a white person or a Jewish person to point that out because I was told never to do that again. You know, I was uh, yeah, by, by, I, by then, friends. Then you've would... given in. If, if, we, if you listen to those people, then we've given in. That's what I meant by that second tenet of wokeism. That, that's what's sometimes called standpoint epistemology. It's the, the idea that your positionality, your standpoint gives you qualification to speak or not speak. If you go by that, you're acceding to the illiberalism of the left. And so I think you're doing the right thing by by talking about this openly as you are right now, because if we do, if we if we succumb to that, if we succumb to that thinking, then we've shut down discourse in society. OK. Um, all right. Thank you. By the way, the the um, you mentioned another uh, Pew study about um, black Americans, 62 percent of whom uh, do not support affirmative action, which in is really fascinating. In higher education, I guess you're talking about college, university, because it seems that there's th this is the way it's going, you know, in terms of um, on college. It's getting harder and harder for Jews to get into certain schools, mm -hmm. um, getting, you know, landing certain jobs. Do you see that continuing, even though even though it doesn't seem to be agreed upon, certainly not by a lot of the minority groups? I yeah, guess Jews and Asians. unless we do something about it and the courts may resolve at least some of this for us, we'll see what happens in the Supreme Court case that's coming up. Um, but um, this concept of equity is really important, and it's another property of woke anti-Semitism. Um, Ibram X. Kendi wrote the best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. You know, every institution assigned it to their board of directors and their staff, and they talked about it in the wake of the George Floyd killing and the great racial reckoning and so forth. Um, and what what Kendi does is he says that any group, uh, anytime a group is below the mean in any field, that is prima facie evidence of discrimination and oppression. And what that means by the same token is any group that is above the mean is complicit in that oppression. That's what he means by equity. And that's the definition of equity that's sort of finding its way in many institutions and government and and elsewhere. And I think what you're seeing now is you're seeing this equity concept starting to um, starting to have effect. So you're, you're hearing about people who would have easily gotten into an Ivy League school before not get into one now because yeah. because they're being sort of shut out of those schools because of this new equity standard. That's affirmative action on steroids. And this is much more blatant quota system than we've had in the past. Um, and it may not in many cases be explicitly against Jews, but um, but I, I, I'm not sure about that. I know um, I know a very interesting, compelling, young Orthodox Jew, Jewish guy who was at the top of his class at an Ivy League school, was in the top one tenth of one percent in his LSATs, had written articles in all kinds of journals, but he's conservative leaning, did not get mm -hmm. into a single Ivy League law school. And so... Wow. Um, you know, I think that that's not an accident, actually. I'm hearing more and more about that. And I think that the Jewish community that sort of signed on the dotted line of deference on equity is going to see that it's going to really hurt them in their prospects and their kids down the line. You know, I know people whose 
jobs were lost as part of an equity sweep where they decided that they needed a certain representation in their in their workplace and they decided to fire a bunch of people if they weren't of that race and hire a bunch of new people and they did that and they lost their jobs they were laid out is not legal i mean is not discrimination so, so a lot of this is probably illegal and needs to be fought a lot of this in my judgment is probably a violation of the 1964 civil rights act and um and it needs to be litigated, but litigation can take years and years. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see some of those cases start to work their way up in the court system. And, and we'll get some more clarity on that in the years, in the you know days to come. And, and are you seeing any of the, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of financial support for some of those very, a lot of Jewish financial support for some of those very, uh, you know, high level academic institutions Harvard, Yale, Princeton, that turned this student down. I'm not familiar with that case in particular, but but is there any backlash here or concerted kind of effort um, to to change to change what 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 is starting to happen here? So a lot of this is new. The first effects of this might be in your kids' private school, even your kids' Jewish day schools in some instance, where they've embraced this ideology. So your first battle may be at the K through 12 level and equity as this sort of concept is only now having an effect. You know, one thing that another tactic in opposing this is what somebody once told me in a, in a meeting I was in, close your wallet and open your mouth. And <laughs> I think that um, more Jews who care about the state of society and who don't want to be victims of this new equity concept are going to have to start closing their wallets and opening their mouths. But I don't think they're fully feeling it yet. I think they're just starting to, you know. So if you have a bunch of parents in Manhattan on the Upper West Side who are very concerned about what their kids are learning in their private schools, but are scared to say anything because they don't want to compromise their kids standing in the school and they want their kids to go to the schools so that those schools get them into Princeton and Harvard and Yale, when those parents start to realize that these schools are not going to get them into Princeton, Harvard, and Yale, <laughs> then they might start to take a different view on these things and start right. to push back. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. It's just so it's just upsetting to me as a as a Jewish person because if ultimately you're not taught, and I'm concerned about this not just amongst Black Americans, but you know if you're not taught that you through your own merit can make it. And that's really what this country was all about. This was supposed to be the great experiment with meritocracy. Didn't matter what family you came from. And we have so many examples of this, of Holocaust survivors who came here penniless and spoke no English and who made it, at least on the material level. And there are great examples in the black American community too. Maybe not as many, but there are, you know. Um, I was like, you know, I used, uh, when Ben Shapiro, when Ben Carson, excuse me, when Ben Carson was running for president, I was so excited because I was like, why isn't anyone talking about this guy? You know, he, 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 um, whatever. I just, I just felt like, you know, there, there are a lot of examples and he, I know he doesn't subscribe to affirmative action, but it's just so interesting. The Pew study that you were, that you expresses 62 percent because i think fundamentally tell me if you think i'm right on this it's patronizing and it makes you feel like oh i need the system i have to change the system okay as opposed to believing that i can make a difference in the current system right and and, 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 and maybe there's a balance there in other words you know i have two two sons who are both add adhd mm -hmm. and i tried to tell them 
The system may be a bit stacked against you. It may favor a certain kind of kid who's not smarter than you are, but appears to be smarter than you. And the school really doesn't understand you very well. So that's not fair. But if you allow that to be an excuse for, for, for your not succeeding in the system, then, then you're going to hold yourself back. So can we teach our kids to both fight for a better system on the one hand and at the same time understand that there's always going to be a system and that system will never be perfect? So that's the balance I sort of seek in our politics and in our moral attitudes and the like. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of uh, black Americans who agree. They worry about it a lot. Um, and, and they know, look, I mean, I think we can understand that it's not been that long in years since Jim Crow. Right. Um, we, right. It's not right. been that long since redlining. There's been a lot of socioeconomic factors that have indeed held blacks down in America for a long time. Just because you remove them doesn't immediately solve every problem. Some of those problems that were adaptive in those circumstances may be coming back now to haunt some of those communities. What works for you in one set of circumstances may not work for you in another. And and so there's a lot of reason to feel compassion for people who have had the deck stacked against them for generations. And yet, just focusing on those obstacles is not going to get you um, to the next level. In fact, it may actually further hold you back and hold your community back. And mm-hmm. and that's why there are a lot of great black intellectuals who are not going along with this ideology and who find it offensive because they're worried that that's what's happening in their own community. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's also, par- you know, lessons for parenting. Like if we have to teach our children that there's a very fine line between turning off your kid and saying the system is broken, you can never make it here, and saying that there are problems in the system. There are issues in the system, but if you work hard enough, you'll still you'll work around them. You'll just have to right. deal with it. In the 1950s, my dad graduated from law school. Nobody would hire Jews in any of the white glove, you know, Wall Street firms. So uh, my dad's very dear friend and colleague, Nat Lewin, I don't know if you met, you know, Nat, Nat Lewin, Lewin. Yes. Yeah. He's an unbelievable uh, model. So he ended up clerking for a Supreme Court judge because he couldn't get the, the you know, he graduated top of his class at Harvard Law School, but it didn't matter. He still wasn't going to get a job because they weren't taking Jews in those firms in those days. But he figured out a sort of a way around it and ended up starting his own firm, which is very interesting and um, not so simple. But But if you tell your kids that, you know, there's a will, there's a way. This country is not perfect, but it's not completely broken. And, and we, you know, there's something in between because, you know, if you don't teach your kids, you know, resilience, we're seeing what's unfortunately what's happening. Yeah. In fact, I, what we're doing sometimes is conditioning our kids to lean into their anxiety, to lean into their weakness. And I think that it's creating a culture in which they're, they're not taking ownership. You know, you can see wokeness really having an effect in psychology in particular, cognitive behavioral therapy is meant to get people to understand their own agency and to take responsibility for their lives. That's what cognitive behavioral therapy does. And yet imagine how that's being corrupted by an ideology that tells you that the system is responsible for your outcomes. You're it works against the very foundations of psychotherapy. And there's a lot of psychotherapists who are worried. Some of them are saying so, and some of them are just going along with it, but they're very concerned about what it's doing to their own field. 
Um, and I think we're, we're doing a lot of damage right now to our kids by, by constantly talking about how the system is stacked against them, about how they're, um, they're, they're leaning into their, their fears more than ever. And we're not doing a good job of producing resilient kids. You know, I, I literally, David, I just shared this beautiful, um, if it's okay, I'm going to share it with you. And then I'll have one last question. Um, this beautiful piece of Torah that I heard from a, a colleague of mine, Rabbi Yossi Levine, who's the rabbi at the Jewish Center. And he asked why Joseph, the great biblical personality, Joseph, a couple of things seem to get repeated in his life, right? He, for, he gets, um, he gets, um, he, uh, he has these dreams and, um, and he tells these dreams to his brothers, gets them into a lot of trouble. But then later on, he interprets other people's dreams and things go really well. First, he gets thrown into a pit by his brothers. Things are not good. But in the next situation, when he's thrown into jail in Egyptian prison for he was accused of making advances against Potiphar's wife, which he never did. He then uses that opportunity to interpret other people's dreams. He turns to the wine steward and the, and the baker of Pharaoh and he interprets their dreams. And then Pharaoh fetches. And it's a whole story. And then there's another situation with temptation, a lot of repetition. So Rabbi Levine was suggesting that what the Torah, what Judaism is teaching, is very powerful, is that in each of the first scenario, first pit scenario, first dream scenario, first seductive scenario, Joseph is an object. Things are happening to him. In the second situation, which is almost similar, which is very similar, he's now becoming a subject. He goes from object to subject, and that's growing up where things where you feel like sort of the victim of circumstance to realizing there are circumstances, but my job in life is to basically as to at the best of our ability to take, to get a handle on what's happening and not feel like a victim, but act to whatever degree is possible. It's a very, very important Jewish teaching. It was just, I don't know, you reminded me of it. Yeah. When you were. yeah. And I'm also reminded of Victor Frankl's amazing book, you know, Man's Search for Meaning, in which he talks about people even under the most extreme conditions in the camps in the, during the Holocaust. He said that the people who were able to sort of make it through if they weren't murdered um, by the Nazis often refused to, to uh, give in to the nihilism around them. They, 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 they've even in those dire circumstances imposed meaning on the world. And that meaning gave them the will to live. And so if, if, if that's the case for people who are in the camps, imagine how we could think about our kids and teach our kids differently about how to deal with the inevitable problems and the inevitable setbacks that they're getting in life. Life is complicated. You're not going to, it's not always going to work out for you. Um, but, but teaching them the opposite, I think that's a real problem. In some ways, we're elevating qualities in order to protect people who are fragile we're elevating their fragility to the point that that becomes almost a value in and of itself and yeah and i think by the way your your reference is beautifully said thank you your reference to victor frankel he says in the book that what he believed the nazis were trying to prove in some sort of you know disgusting social experiment is that if you put someone if you put certain human beings maybe we consider jews humans but if you put people in a certain scenario, you can control them just like an animal. And like exactly the way you said it, every time some Jew shared their meager ration with a fellow Jew, they disproved the Nazis 
and demonstrated that they aren't completely controlled by, we are not completely controlled by our circumstances. And that's that, that, that little morsel of bread that a Jew gave to their fellow was a demonstration that even under the most extreme circumstances, we can control our own destiny. Um, I just think I, I really appreciate it. I just have one last question. I want to, I, because, and this is more of like within the Jewish community, we're talking about, spoke a lot of time about wokeism fueling anti-Semitism from the outside. It's no secret that liberal Jews in the United States vote Democrat and Orthodox Jews vote Republican. Of course, there are exceptions. I have Orthodox friends who vote Democrat. My brother is a mayor in, in New Jersey. He's a Democrat. Um, but the political divide is become much more stark in my own lifetime. You know, I, I, I had the honor of working for Senator Patrick Moynihan years ago, who was a liberal Democrat. And it wasn't a weird thing that an Orthodox Jew was working for a liberal Democrat. And I used to see him going out to lunch with um, conservatives, like right wing Republican sure. conservatives in Congress. And they were really friends and colleagues like you don't see that today. And I'm concerned yeah, about don't. the yeah. I, and I'm concerned about the Jewish community. Um how in your mind can we stay united despite the fact that our social and political differences are becoming more stark? Yeah. Well, one thing I would say, and I'm not sort of sure this is a, a, a solution, but it's sort of the mentality I'm hoping people will adopt, is that just as Jews, liberal Jews, secular Jews, non-Orthodox Jews have sort of aligned themselves uncritically sometimes with the left, um, and don't understand the dangers that lurk. Maybe Orthodox Jews have done the same with the right and are, are undervaluing the dangers that lurk. And that we, in some sense, we both need to go back to this idea that, um, that you know, politics is a man-made affair, that nobody is perfect, and that, um, and that we're going to find dangers on our own side, and we have to be constantly open to them. We have to be in conversation with each other, by the way. I think we could do much more to be in, uh, to, to, to dialogue with one another. I feel like too often our, the Orthodox communities, especially the Haredi community, but not only Haredi community, are not, are not having discussions with each other in ways that are constructive. So I think we could do some more of that as well, like on this podcast that you do. And, um, and so the people can understand where, where they're coming from and not sort of uh, caricature each other and the way that they t talk about each other and both could use a little bit more political realism and understand the dangers in being too closely associated with one camp or another. This is not your father's Republican party and it's not your mother's democratic party. <laughs> and, um, no, I, and I, I think that's a very fair, I think that's a very fair comment because I think the, you know, the more liberal denominations get, you know, accused and criticized of being too connected with the left, progressive, liberal, and that's what's going into wokeism. And we're, and uh, but I would agree. I would agree. I think um, we get too comfortable with the extreme right. Uh, and I've always said this as a rabbi, by the way. You can't look at the Torah and say the Torah is conservative. The Torah is liberal. It depends on the issue. The Torah comes out very liberal and socialist on some on some issues, and it comes out quite conservative. And to the right on other issues, it, it really depends what it is. We like to kind of play up the parts of the Torah that seem to endorse what we happen to believe naturally already, you know, but right. that's not being intellectually honest. Right. And maybe we could do more to sort of in both the Orthodox world and in the 
non-Orthodox world to elevate the idea of machlok at Lashem Shemayim, arguments for the sake of heaven. We could try to live by that more ourselves by being in, in, in thoughtful conversations where we validate each other's perspectives as much as possible and create models of that. I mean, maybe that way that the Jews can really be a light unto the nations or to the nation in America by, by exemplifying the very values that we need in society at large in order to function as a, as a society, in order to get the future Daniel Patrick Moynihan to have lunch with his Republican colleagues. And if we can't, if Jews can't do that, and we come from the same tradition and have the same, you know, uh, same book, um, then then nobody's going to do that. So let's start with ourselves, maybe. Yeah, I, 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 so listen, we're all guilty of it. We get into our own little bubbles, our own little echo chambers, and we talk amongst ourselves. I'm part of all these, you know, chats, but they're not, they're not inclusive of the broader community. Um, Anything on the more grassroots level, I think what you're suggesting is true for leaders. What about for just Jewish people? You know, I, I have students, most of the are our constituency, 20s and 30s. Like, they're not going out, literally dating. <laughs> um, I have a student who moved to Florida during COVID because she became more conservative. And she was having a hard time dating. And she's not an Orthodox Jew. She was, I guess, becoming more observant, you know, during, uh, that, that tends to happen when people study more and learn more and get more involved. She was having a hard time finding guys that were, um, that were, I guess, aligned with her thinking. And I, and, and, you know, are we, are the days over where a conservative can, can date a liberal or maybe Republican and, you know, I mean, it's uh, becoming harder and the, and the data shows that uh, the Jewish Institute for liberal values just um, conducted a poll that this August um, in which it showed that people are erecting political litmus tests in their personal relationships. Now that's more common on the left than it is the right or the mainstream. Um, you're seeing, you know, progressives, say, well, I'm not going to go to Uncle Lenny's house for Thanksgiving because he's a Trump voter. You know, you're seeing that more on the left, I believe, than on the right. And I think the data bears that out. Um, but uh, but it is happening across society. And I think that's an unfortunate outgrowth of a very ideological time when this process of political sorting is affecting everything, including our familial relationships as well. And um, I think we've got to condition people not to not to always be in political footing all the time, you know, to be in, uh, to be open to different views and different ways of thinking. And, um, and, you know, I mean, obviously when it comes to dating, it's a whole different ball game, you know, uh, you know, you're entitled to say, I want to marry somebody who more or less shares a lot of my political viewpoints. I mean, you know, people who marry somebody uh, across the ideological aisle, you know, who needs another source of, of, of disagreement <laughs> in a marriage. Right after, but, after, right after you're arguing all day with your colleagues at work, you come yeah, home. Yeah, maybe you come home and your, your wife or husband or whatever tells you that you're right for a little bit. You know, that's not, not such a bad thing. But, um, but you know, um, so I, I do think that we are, that political scientists talk about this process of political sorting, that, that, that Democrats are much more likely to feel um, completely aligned with the Democrats and Republicans with Republicans uh, with, with other Republicans. And that's not healthy for society. And it's the reason why, um, reason why congressmen from the different parties don't talk to each other like they did in our, maybe in the days that we were both in Washington. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, very unhealthy, very, yeah. very unhealthy. And I think what you said also about our own tradition, you know, 
there is a um, a concept, you know, you talked about having a machlok at L'shem Shemayim, debating for the sake of heaven. Um, the Talmud is replete with argumentation and debate. But, you know, my favorite teaching on this is, you know, Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. I don't know if you've heard of this, Absolutely. that when Hillel Absolutely. and Shammai always argued, it always said Beit, it's the house of, the academy of, because their children were marrying amongst each other. Yes. And they were on the personal level friends. Um, and, you know, if we, 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 I just feel like we're such a small people. We've, we've divided ourselves up into these denominations already. And now we're further divided because of the political and social issues that are coming up. And I just, we need more achdus. We need more love and, and in, in our community. So to whatever degree, all of us can help promote that. I just think it's so important um, for the Jewish people. It's important for the world and we're supposed to be a model for the world. So Please, God, maybe that's the way we'll uh, bring our conversation to a close that we uh, hopefully will see more more love and unity. And unity doesn't have to mean we agree with each other. Absolutely. It means that we learn how to disagree with each other in a more agreeable yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. So, David, I thank you. You're doing great work thank on you. behalf of the Klal. I, I really I appreciate you being here. And um, please continue to uh, speak to everyone <laughs> and <clears throat> across the aisle and um, to continue to um, unite our community and really the world. Thanks very much. Thank you, David.